Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted path. Fortunately, ScreenCraft are here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures by your favorite writers such as J.J. Abrams and Tony Gilroy, to a daily blog with amazing advice. It's also no secret that ScreenCraft have the best screenwriting competitions around. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, Lionsgate, Universal, Blumhouse, Hulu, the list goes on and on of places that ScreenCraft winners have sold scripts to or have got staffed on shows at. So if you're an aspiring writer, don't wait to check out ScreenCraft at ScreenCraft.org today. Follow the link in today's show notes to find out more and get your writing dreams started. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies and TV shows. I'm your host, Al Horner, and today on the show, we have with us one of the defining horror storytellers of the last decade. He's a trusted custodian of tales by some of the greatest horror authors of all time, with Stephen King, Shirley Jackson, and Edgar Allan Poe, just some of the names that he's adapted. He's made a string of acclaimed movies and TV shows, including The Haunting of Hill House, The Haunting of Bly Manor, and of course, the shining sequel, Doctor Sleep. No work of his, however, is more personal or more profound than 2021's astonishing Midnight Mass. Yes, you've guessed it, it's the one and only Mike Flanagan. I don't really know where to begin telling you guys how intense a personal connection I had to this harrowing vampire story, which may be one of the most devastating but also strangely hopeful TV experiences I have ever had. On today's episode, Mike and I delve deep into the story's creation, going back in time not just to the first draft of its teleplay, not even just to the first draft of an earlier feature film version of the story. No, the conversation you're about to hear goes all the way back to the creation of Midnight Mass, the novel. That's where this tale began life, and the story of its evolution into one of the most moving meditations on religion in recent memory is in fact the story of a series of huge life changes for the filmmaker, as his relationship to alcohol, faith, family, and so many other facets of his existence began to alter. The show told the story of a man named Riley, a recovering addict returning to his small, isolated hometown of Crockett Island after spending four years in jail for killing someone in a drink-driving incident. There he reunites with an old flame named Erin Green. Erin is played by Kate Siegel, Mike's partner and frequent collaborator. Erin is pregnant, but that pregnancy takes on an unexpected turn following the arrival of an enigmatic young priest who begins to unleash upon members of the local church-going community a series of seemingly impossible miracles. What follows from there is an unholy, blood-soaked baptism as a line between what's miraculous and what's monstrous becomes dangerously blurred. In the spoiler conversation you're about to hear, Mike tells me why his love for Midnight Mass is so great that he still has the angel-slash-vampire's enormous wings in his garage. We get into early abandoned plans for a second season of the show in which Riley was to be revived as the show's antagonist. That's right, the plan was to have him become a traveling preacher with a Southern Baptist revival tent that toured America. We also talk about a major character switch that would have led to a very different story and the musicality of the monologues that have become a big calling card of Mike's work. 
and of which there are of course a number of really beautiful examples in Midnight Mass. Next up for Mike is House of Usher coming later this year, so get ready to hear a little bit about what's in store there. There's also some interesting tidbits about hanging out with video game icon Hideo Kojima, the Nightmare on Elm Street film that he has an idea for but is struggling to secure the rights to, and about a script he wrote centered on the same fungus as the one at the heart of The Last of Us. It was a joy to record this one, Mike has been a dream guest of mine since we started this podcast, so it was more than worth the wait, I really hope you guys enjoy it. One tiny thing to mention before we jump in, if you like what we do and would like to see the show continue to grow, you can support us on Patreon. For the price of a single monthly cup of coffee, you'll get ad-free episodes, early access to episodes, the chance to ask your questions to upcoming guests, and excitingly, as of today, a brand new bonus segment video series called Postscript, which is kind of like a little debrief between me and my producer Cam, talking about the episode that just dropped, the things we learned, the things we loved hearing about, all that kind of stuff. Head to patreon.com forward slash script apart if you'd like to get involved there. We really do appreciate your support. Okay, with that all out the way, let's get into it. This is the incredible Mike Flanagan discussing the first draft secrets of Midnight Mass. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demeck. Mike Flanagan, welcome to Script Apart. How's it going today? I'm doing so good. How are you? I'm doing good, man. It's uh, it's 10 p.m. my time. So this conversation's not quite a midnight mass, but we're getting there. <laughs> <laughs> we're in the right direction. Yeah. Um, it's great to have you with us, man. You're, you're a filmmaker who, just to put all my cards on the table, I simultaneously adore, but also have a long list of moments that I'll never, ever forgive you for putting me through. So the scream from the backseat in Hill House episode eight, uh, the kill yourself moment in Dr. Sleep, the ending of Absentia, a bunch of choice moments in Midnight Mass, which we're going to be discussing today. I could go on here. Wow, thank you. That 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 means an awful lot. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I I very much appreciate that, and I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Don't apologize to me. Apologize to my neighbors who've had to hear me shrieking <laughs> through the walls. Um, in, in all seriousness, though, Mike. Um, in addition to the terror of your work, there's also like an incredible emotionality, and it's one of the things that I really connect to about your films and your shows. Terror and catharsis are often two sides of the same coin in your stories, with, with ghosts and monsters prodding your characters in the direction of breakthroughs that they need to have or emotions they need to confront. The story of a Mike Flanagan series or movie is often the story of a character or characters being forced into personal reckonings that they've hid from. Is that a fair characterization, would you say? And, and if so, where does that incredible tenderness in your work come from, do you think? Oh, um, I, I look. I, I I love what you said. So I hope it's a fair characterization of it. I I um I, I think I I got that because I grew up reading Stephen King, and and I think I think he does that so beautifully. Um, when it really it changed for me when I became a parent as well. Uh, what I what resonated with me about horror changed because. Um, the scares and and the genre moments and and all the stuff that that the horror fans come for, all of that stuff gets to be repetitive. It gets to be predictable. It, it it's it's kind of the candy we we toss out there to get people to come listen to our story, right? And for me, without that humanistic gear, without some kind of vein of 
love and empathy and and hope the horror doesn't land it 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 you know bleakness on a bleak landscape is just depression there there's no real contrast or or stakes if if everything is just evil and and stephen king you know very famously said horror can't exist without without love and i think that burrowed its way into my head very young and and it's it's really become more and more of a priority as i've been lucky enough to keep working uh that i leave something for my kids to interrogate that doesn't show the world as being hopeless and no matter how scary it is and, and no matter how dark the things we want to explore and confront are that there's always something underneath it that that is tender and is gentle and and encourages them not to ever give up i think is is where it comes from but you know and you mentioned kind of uh discovering stephen king discovering horror quite young can you remember before that your first experience like outside of literature outside of film of a of a feeling of pure terror mike is there a particular moment of raw fear that you can recall from childhood that um yeah maybe set you on the path that that you went on there there are two really there there's one that's kind of in media that's something i saw that that scared me so much i didn't really understand how much it it affected me until i decades later but it was an episode of fraggle rock and <laughs> it, i know it's it's so ridiculous and it was it was you know the last place you'd expect to be terrified as a kid because it's it's adorable Muppets. And there was a, an episode they did where they had this thing called the Terrible Tunnel. And it was a place Fraggles weren't supposed to go. And they they boarded it up and they said, stay out of this terrible tunnel because Fraggles go in and they never come out, which for me was like, wait, Fraggles die? That's new. Uh, <laughs> and of course, one of these Fraggles goes into the tunnel and the tunnel is full of the trapped shredded ghosts of fraggles like it's terrifying and they're trapped there and i was i was utterly unprepared for this as a kid it 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 was this burst of horror which i it was a concept i didn't even understand outside of formless kind of childhood nightmares um and it infiltrated a, a, a space that was safe like it was friggin' fraggle rock it was like this is where, <laughs> this is where i go to sing songs and have fun like what is this doing here and it rattled me so much I, and my parents remember me being unable to sleep and just being freaked out by this terrible tunnel um and it didn't occur to me until years after my career had really started and i was doing an interview with someone about absentia and it occurred to me that i just did the terrible tunnel like that, that decades later, that was my first kind of breakout, you know, run at the horror genre. I went all the way back to that feeling of being a scared kid. Um, and I think that's, that's where we go. It's, you know, we, we dig back into those, into those barely remembered feelings of anxiety we have when we're very small. It really is the first emotion that we all collectively experience, you know, like we're, before we're forming memories, we're having nightmares. It's the strangest thing. Um, but yeah, so that that was the first time I remember being horribly scared, <laughs> something I saw and watched. Um, and I have a, I think it's a dream because I'm I'm a skeptical person and I I I don't believe in ghosts the way they're kind of represented and 
in horror fiction. And I, I, I don't believe in a lot of things. I, I'm a very pragmatic human. And um, I have a memory, though, as a child of a little boy looking into my window, into my bedroom window, very late at night. Um, and I was on the second floor and there was nothing underneath my window. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I, I tell myself, uh, and I've told myself my whole life that that was a creepy dream I had as a child. Um, but I remember that face vividly. And I don't remember, I can't think of another dream that I had that young that I recall. And that has stayed with me for my whole life. So that, that face in the window and that episode of Raggle Rock <laughs> have, have forged me uh, into, into into the genre aficionado that I am today. Right. We've got to get you the Fraggle Rock IP, man. <laughs> Let's get those rights. <laughs> I know. And then they, they did the reboot and I was like, it's going to be great. I just hope they don't go full horror with it this time. Like, I hope they, <laughs> they do a family-friendly version of Fraggle Rock for a change. You know, it's interesting. I think my first experience of terror that like, I cling on to or, well, have tried to discard over the years but has kind of clung to me uh, very fittingly for this conversation about Midnight Mass, it was it was an oil painting of Jesus at the top of my grandparents' stairs, and his eyes seemed to kind of follow me around the hallway. And I, I obviously wouldn't have been able to articulate it then, but like it strikes me now that the Bible and a lot of the tenets of Catholicism they they really terrified me as someone who grew up in like an Irish Catholic family because th there's kind of a lot of elements within the lore of Christianity that are borderline horror you know death resurrection that's kind of inherently supernatural inherently spooky um, was that something that kind of preyed on your mind at all as you approached Midnight Mass? Absolutely. So so we we had we both grew up uh, Irish Catholic right. So, and I completely agree with you. I would even argue it doesn't borderline horror. It, if you just just take the Bible, it is full of horror stories. Yeah, I mean, straight up Fraggle Rock level. <laughs> like it is, it is, it is intense. Um, and you know that that was a hugely defining part of my childhood. I, I was an altar boy. I was. Uh, I was in Sunday school. I went to Catholic uh, elementary school, Catholic high school. I didn't really start to question it till I was in college. And uh, so I was well into my 20s before I really looked back and, and, and thought, wait a minute, what what does it mean to be a Catholic? And what what is it that I'm meant to be believing um, and started to interrogate it? And yeah, I, I always uh, from when I was a child all the all the way through found Catholicism, found the Bible uh, to be full of, of, of horror. And, and I remember getting in trouble at uh, CCD when they were trying to explain as we were preparing for First Communion and they were trying to explain the concept of transubstantiation, which is that the, the bread and the wine uh, are literally spiritually transformed into the actual flesh and blood of Jesus. And as a kid, I was terrified of that. I was like, well, what, what do you mean? I don't want to, I don't want anything to do with that. I don't want to drink blood because the only thing I could associate that with was vampirism. 
And, you know, and they're like, oh, no, no, you want to live forever. You have to drink the blood of of Jesus. And I'm like, this is anyone else seeing this the way I see it. This is this is vampiric. Um, and when they, you know, we got into the, the most basic stuff, we, 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 I got in, I remember being corrected, uh, by, by, uh, sister Cecilia, uh, a nun in, in my first grade class corrected me on the resurrection because I called Jesus a zombie, you know, <laughs> it, it, it very much, um, it was always, I, I was trying to, to reconcile, everything I was learning about the faith with everything I thought I knew about horror and, and mixing them up together. And, and, you know, that absolutely midnight mass is a reaction to my whole life of, of that kind of bizarre cross thinking. Um, and is in, in many ways kind of the inevitable reaction to my upbringing. The, the balance of it is quite incredible. Like, the duality of religion that it acknowledges, the way that faith can be, it can be a comforting presence, but it can also be weaponized with, with such violence. You know, I'm, I'm aware the story began as a novel in 2010. Did it always, from the earliest iteration, uh, aspire to have that balance? Was it always acknowledging of the fact that faith can be kind of a power for betterment as well as something that's divisive? It's interesting. The, the earliest drafts of it... Um were actually more critical of faith than where it landed. Um, and it, it, it came out of years of religious study when, when I finally started to interrogate Catholicism and, and really look back on my upbringing. I, I spent about six years investigating world religions and I came out of that an atheist. I came out of that, you know, angry as well about a lot of the, the things that I had been taught growing up. And, um, so the the even the novel, like the very earliest version of this thing, it started the same way. And it started with the image of the uh, the ichthys, the Jesus fish emblem on Riley's car with the siren lights. That has always been the first image of of the thing. I initially and in, in, I think in the novel, there was blood on it from the accident, but I could never figure out how realistically to get <laughs> to get the blood over to the back of the car like that. <laughs> Um, so we ended up getting rid of that, but, but it always was meant to kind of come roaring out as a, as, as an intense in, indictment of some of what I believe to be the weaponization of any belief system and specifically Catholicism for this story, but, but anything, um, it softened over the years actually. And, and as my emotional reaction to everything calmed and I, and I got older, um, it became more important to have an equal counterweight and to say, I also want to show, um, how beautiful faith can be expressed and how, how, how the other side of that can, it, cause I thought it was initially a story about, about, um, faith versus reason or belief versus disbelief. Yeah. And the it, it wasn't ultimately. And and to say, no, it's it's the the way we believe and the way we demonstrate our faith and the way we behave, those were the two sides I wanted to to kind of pit against each other. It took me the longest time to realize that, you know, it how critical it was that I see a beautiful 
expression of faith from several of the main characters as a counterweight to the more weaponized and fanatical thinking of others. And it, 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 I, had, I had to evolve myself to to find that again and get over my, you know, mid twenties kind of anger. You know, it might be, uh, it just occurred to me that it might be surprising some listeners to hear us talking about Midnight Mass dating back so far, Mike. You know, the show really spoke to our time when it eventually arrived in 2021. There's been a real uptick in in Bev-like characters in global politics of late, kind of twisting religion into an instrument for power. There's also a lot that the show had to say, I guess, about kind of community hysteria and that slow crawl into deranged beliefs, which... Wow, between January 6th and QAnon and and kind of other flashpoints across the COVID era, we've seen a lot up close of that sort of thing lately. Were those always baked into the show or did you see those trends emerging and kind of tinker with Midnight Mass as the years went on to lean into those elements? How did it work? Coincidence more than anything else. The, the crazy thing to me is that it felt as relevant in 2010 as as it does now. And that if anything, I thought we were really pushing it. You know, Bev Keen hasn't changed a note since she was she first hit the page. I thought we were kind of stretching a little with her. And the fact that we aren't, you know, the, the fact that it's like she's not nearly as extreme as I thought she was. You know, she's in Congress. You know, it's it's really it's that has proven to be kind of depressing for me that, you know, that a lot of the ideas I'm grateful because I think a lot of the ideas we talk about are relevant in, in any number of, of contexts historically. And I'm, I'm watching this incredible documentary right now by Ken Burns called America and the Holocaust. Yeah. And I'm shocked by how similar the political landscape in America was then uh, compared to now. And, and, you know, this, I, I read some critical pieces of, of midnight mass when it came out that said, Oh, this, this is clearly an attack on Trumpism. Oh, this is clearly an attack. Uh, this is a reaction to COVID, which to me was completely insane. <laughs> we we were we were two weeks away from filming when the outbreak happened. We had no yeah. idea, you know. Like, um, but the fact that it can be so easily applied to these very immediate and contemporary events um, only, I think, reinforces our thesis that you know belief systems can be weaponized very easily and context can be very malleable. Um, and so there was never a time when we said, oh, we should update this based on a current event. The idea was that the weaponization of, of a dogmatic belief system would always be relevant in that if we waited another news cycle, there'd be another example that that seemed to support our thesis. I think the thing I was writing about the most, I took out a couple of, uh, there were, there were some monologues in the early draft where characters discussed, uh, gay marriage very passionately. And, um, that issue by the time we got to shoot the show, wasn't nearly the hot topic, you know, uh, that it was in, in, in 2010, it, it felt like it was settled for the most part. And, um, but I, there was a there was a whole plot where Aaron Green got in trouble with the the school board on Crockett Island for her views about same sex marriage, and I 
just needed to change the topic a little. The the arguments all remained intact. You know, it really, um, unfortunately, I think we're never going to run out of current events wherein this kind of 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 faith is weaponized and that is one of the reasons why the show is important to me so you know you touched on that erin storyline that that came out what else changed across all these different drafts as the as as midnight mass went from an, a novel to a feature script in 2012 to a more advanced screenplay uh, in 2013 and then eventually I think it was 2014 that you started to piece it together as a TV show what what were some of the big changes across that time oh let's see um so the novel really you know is very focused on Riley and and uh, opened the same way with the accident and then jail and then coming to Crockett and the arrival of Father Paul and the reunion with Aaron all of that was there and Bev was there um i think one one interesting change about the novel the in the in that first draft uh the sheriff was not a muslim that that was that came later the the whole character of of sheriff hassan came later um and uh i believe the sheriff's name was gunning so you repurposed that yeah we 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 (laughs) we took that and 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 pushed that over to doc uh to, to sarah's character but um I made it a, a f- not too far into the novel and it it felt too big and it it felt like I was just kind of spending most of my time speaking for Riley. Um I tried it as a script I thought it'd be a great movie. Uh I made it I think 180 pages in and Riley and Father Paul were sitting down to have their first serious conversation in the in the AA meeting and I was like this isn't a movie. (laughs) We have a long way to go. Um, The bigger changes that kicked in uh, happened when, when finally it became clear that we were going to, we developed it as a TV pitch 2014, took it out. Um, It was way more vampire centric because uh, the, the pressure around town was get the vampires in there early. Uh, And so we had, you know, a kind of accelerated, vampiric presence that I, I never felt good about. Um, the biggest change we had was from the very beginning up until about halfway through the Netflix writer's room. Um, it was Aaron who got killed at midpoint and converted into a vampire and comes to Riley's door and they row out together and she bursts into flames as the sun came up and Riley rode back and the whole thing was Riley was a skeptic. Aaron was a moderate. She got attacked by the vampires. Um, she got converted to, to a vampire. She knew Riley would never believe it because he's a skeptic. So she proved, sacrificially proved it to him. And then Riley went back to do battle with Father Paul. And it was Father Paul, the believer versus Riley, the non-believer. And for the longest time, that's what the show was. And I remember um, two things happened in the writer's room that changed everything. One was um, uh, it was Teresa Sutherland, one of our one of our writers in the room, pitched that Aaron was pregnant and, in the pilot and that we would deal with it by having her body kind of just undo the pregnancy 
as she ingested more of the of the vampire blood. And the emotional impact of that, I thought, was so overwhelming um, that it started making me look at Aaron very differently as a character. Uh, because prior to that, the big question I kept wrestling with was, other than being a love interest for Riley, and then ultimately kind of sacrificing herself just to, again, benefit Riley on his journey, it was like, we aren't serving this character very well. Um, and then with that pitch about her, it, it gave Aaron a life that was fascinating to me outside of Riley. Um, and it, it made me realize that I didn't want to do a, a show about Riley versus Father Paul and belief versus atheism that kind of those two extreme positions should cancel each other out and that the hero of the show was the moderate. Um, and that would be the voice that we needed to, to serve the best. And so we switched the entire uh, rowboat dynamic and, and it was just, okay. So say Riley burns up, he served his purpose in the story. And Aaron, who is a character of faith, has to take this information and go back and and inherits basically the the show at that point. Um, and it felt so correct. And I, I think part of what took me so long to realize it, I identified so strongly with Riley because Riley was this avatar for me, for my atheism, for my alcoholism, for my sobriety, which is a whole other gear that I should talk about that changed a lot. But um, I, I identified with him so strongly that it, it took years for me to realize that he needed to get out of the way. And um, that, that really broke things open in a huge way. Um, I remember we had done even hints about a potential second season of the show where Riley fights with the angel at the end and you see him get, you know, his throat ripped open and you never see him die on screen. And he came back as the antagonist of the second season as this traveling preacher with a like Southern Baptist revival tent. And it was Warren and Lisa chasing him across America, trying to trying to kill Riley because he was he was now the villain of the story. And I, it was like we had all that stuff drawn out and it all we threw it all away with Aaron. Um, and when once we decided this was actually Aaron Green's story and she was our hero. Uh, it made it OK for me to do something else I was reluctant to do, which was to kill the island. Um, and initially I'd, I'd had about half the population was wiped out and the others lived to pick up the pieces and learn their lessons. And with Aaron, it, once I, I kind of, we had, a, I remember we had long discussions about whether Aaron survived the show and when it was clear that she didn't and that it all was going to end with Aaron musing about what happens when we die as she dies. Um, at that point it was, you know, if Aaron green isn't here anymore, they can all go. And, um, maybe that's where we find the poetry and that's where we find the most beautiful expression of faith. I thought would be when there's no apparent hope left and there's no witness to the heroism, you know, that, that it's a closed system and the sun's coming up and it's done. 
and all, everyone's fate has been, you know, meted out. All the cards have been turned over. That 10 minutes before the sunrise, I was like, that's where we can see faith. That's where we can see when it matters, when the stakes are gone and the outcome is preordained. Um, that's when we can see it. And that, so all of that, and them singing nearer my God to thee and all the, my favorite things about the end never would have happened with Riley, um, where we would have made a show about the triumph of atheism, uh, which is not the show I wanted to make. It's a show I thought I wanted to make when I was in my twenties, you know, <laughs> or the, the story I thought I wanted to tell when I was younger, but, um, but it wasn't. The other big change is I started writing this years before I got sober. And so I was writing about alcoholism and I was writing about sobriety long before I, I knew what I was talking about. So um, it, 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 it cracks me up quite a bit because this story's always started exactly the same way. It's always started with the car accident, with the, you know, the DUI. Um, the vehicular manslaughter and, and that more than I ever understood was my biggest fear. Um, and it was, I started writing it before I ever acknowledged I had an issue with drinking before I ever confronted it in any meaningful way. Uh, but that's what I was scared of was that I was going to kill somebody if I didn't do something. And that subconscious fear, you know, drove all these conversations like the, the midnight mass was always a series of conversations. And it was, I, I realize now it was conversations I was having with myself and arguments I was having with myself. And I didn't get sober until, uh, 2018. Um, you know, I don't know what midnight mass would be, uh, if, if I hadn't, gone through the years it took me to to find that sobriety um and i think that's one of the other reasons why riley as a character became less critically important to me at midpoint is is a, in a lot of ways i look back at riley as who i was um and so yeah i it yeah it changed a lot it changed an awful lot over the years uh and then you have kind of the superficial changes, you know, I, I'll, I'll end this ramble on a, on a laugh, <laughs> you know, um, Netflix made me put in the scene where the cat got killed, uh, <laughs> in, the, in the pilot, <laughs> this bizarre scene where a cat is stalked and killed on camera, like Jason Voorhees style from, by an unseen thing. And I hate it so much. <laughs> <laughs> to go for 10 years with this story that never had anything like that in it and and like have that kind of change land on you at the end like for all the seismic huge changes that we did that is one of the ones that sticks out the most when i see the final thing <laughs> it's not even in the script it's just like this dumb thing that happens in the middle of the episode because they thought that'll that'll get the viewers attention look what they did to that cat <laughs> well, we spoke earlier about, you know, earlier iterations having like a certain acceleration towards getting to the vampire material. It's a good two hours of television before you see someone get killed and the best part of three before you really confront this creature. You know, I, I guess if if um, if the bargain with Netflix is throwing this this small scare involving a cat to, to kind of 
win the intrigue of an audience, then that's not the worst uh, worst transaction to make. Speaking of transactions, the phrase you used there, like series of conversations around, well, alcoholism, but a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of assets of the show. That's such a perfect word for it. In particular, you know, in terms of sobriety, alcoholism and, and that whole strand of this, you know, one thing I find so interesting is um, the show has such an interesting articulation of, of one frustration that many people find with the 12-step program, like the transactionality of it. So it offers you salvation, but only through assigning of yourself over to the church, to a higher power. And it, you know, it's obviously great that a lot of people you know, find some solace in, in that program. But, but for some, for, for Riley, as he kind of beautifully puts across, that the, the transaction taking place as you're offered help only in return for, for religious faith. That's kind of a roadblock, uh, you know, for some people in recovery. Um, can you talk to me about that? There's so much nuance in the show. There's so much patience in the show. Can you tell me about like the fights you had to fight to, to win that? Was it a case of Hill House had been such a success that you had bought some trust or uh, how did it work out that way? Oh, I asked myself that all the time. <laughs> um, the, uh, <laughs> It's funny. And, and the, the scene that you're talking about specifically was one of the scenes we fought about with with Netflix was was this conversation about AA versus rational recovery or RR, um, which is a program that that I very much found value in because I, I had the same roadblock to AA that you're describing. I know I know a fair amount of people that have. Um, and that conversation was critically important to me as kind of not only for those characters, but articulating some of the, the really delicate specific conversations we're having about rationalism and reason and faith and, and that transactional nature of, of some belief systems, whether they're, you know, whether it's AA, whether it's a church, whether it's politics, whether, whether it's, you know, in, in some, to some degree, uh, competing opinions in the scientific community, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot you can apply it to. Um, Hill House was a hit, but I don't think it was a big enough hit to explain how we got away with some of the things we got away with on the show. <laughs> and and um, I, you know, there was enthusiasm from some of our executives at Netflix for what the show was. Um, there was always pressure to take those conversations and make them much shorter, if not get rid of them entirely. Um and there was something else happening at Netflix at the time, which was there was a seismic regime change that kicked in. And there was a global pandemic um, right before production began. Um, and there were executives who started with the show, but then did not finish with us because they were transferred internally. Um, we had people who came onto the project well after it was shot. I think we walked kind of between the raindrops on a lot of aspects of the show that otherwise would have would have invited much more scrutiny and potentially interference. Um, and there's there's a, a, a part of me that feels like we slid in between these two huge pillars of this of the story of Netflix. And as a result, you know, we were able to get away with a lot more than otherwise we would have. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I vividly remember when we were in editorial on the show and there was a whole new executive team on it, it when they came to look at it and said, what, where are all the vampires? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, um, 
was like, they, they, you'll see, just, just wait. Uh, and that by then there was a sense of like, well, this one's kind of cooked, you know, they got there too late to, to really change it too much because it was like, well, we'll focus instead on the midnight club. And, and a lot of that energy for change went into there. But, um, but yeah, we, we kind of got away with a ton. I know for a fact, because it was, it, it, it's been said to me, they wouldn't make this show this way now. And really? yes. Uh, so I, I know we, and I've talked to other showrunners too, who, who became fans of the show and who would say like, I, I can't get away with a nine minute conversation about what happens when we die. <laughs> I, I how did you get away with that? You don't even cut away. And it's like, yeah, I don't know. We, we, it was a, it's, it's a mix of, we did have some phenomenally supportive creative partners at Netflix and in Netflix who championed the show all the way. And I think we got lucky that we kind of, we slid in there between some huge events in the world where people were pretty distracted. So, yeah. I suppose, um, you know, from, from a studio perspective, the long wait to see the vampire, it helps when the vampire is as interesting and, and arresting as it is in Midnight Mass. Did, did the creature, did it go through many different iterations? Like the fine line that it walks visually between angel and monster in, in the finished series is so superb and it's so reflective of that duality that we were speaking to earlier, the way in which faith can be something angelic, something positive, but also a weapon for, for catastrophe. How did you approach the creature itself? And yeah, what kind of evolutions did it go through as you rewrote and rewrote? It, uh, it was always the biblical description of angels I find fascinating and horrifying you know, and down to ones that, that have absolutely no human characteristics whatsoever. And there's beautiful images online you can find where people have tried to faithfully render an angel based on a specific passage of the Bible and how it's described. And sometimes it's a wheel of eyeballs. And sometimes it's just this crazy kind of geometric monsters. Um, I, I really wanted us to walk that line because for me, the vampire of the story the angel of the story, you know, represents fanaticism, which has to be at once grotesque and terrifying and inviting and familiar if that's where your belief system has 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 primed you to to see it that way. And um, so that was the initial thing was take take the Bible, look at the angels, look at our um our popular cultural depictions of angels, which have changed over the years, um, and then go back into some of our most basic and, and fun expressions of vampirism and see where they overlap, see where the Venn diagrams kind of naturally intersect. And let's focus on those elements. Let's, let's play with the wings. You know, how can we make wings that are familiar, angelic, mostly because of the, the kind of horns at the top of the wings that make them feel angelic. But you take away the feathered aspect and, and give it more of a bat vibe that tilts you more toward Bram Stoker. You know, uh, we we played back and forth. Um, but the angel itself, by the time we actually were looking at designs, I think we did two or three iterations with minor adjustments. Uh, but I think I had told them, if you can go back to to Paradise Lost and and look at Renaissance art of angels and demons, and then remember 
Klaus Kinski and Werner Herzog's Nosferatu <laughs> and try to get them all together somehow. That would be my perfect creature. And, and I think they did. And the litmus test was always, how does it look in a cassock? How does it, how does it look in a chasuble? And um, we'd have one rendering of the creature just as it was and one of it in, in the, the ceremonial, you know, silver chasuble. And um, it was just those two images once they felt good together, we were we were good. You mentioned that um, you know originally this story was very much told through the eyes of Riley, and it was much less an ensemble piece. Nowadays, I think you know you, you're known as someone who gravitates towards ensemble fiction. Um, you know, from Hill House to Midnight Club, you know, there's there's many characters, and I guess like I'm fascinated by the ways in which you construct these ensembles as to have like lots of characters, a variety of personalities, and each of them have hopes, fears, desires, and darknesses that you can kind of collide with one another. Is there a particular process that you have, Mike? And, and maybe you can use Midnight Mass as an example. Like, do you ask yourself once you have a theme you want to interrogate, okay, what characters could I create here that would create different ways into that topic? And and then is that what leads you logically into, okay, how about a sheriff with experiences of Islamophobia, who's, whose faith has been tested by the death of his wife? Is that the kind of way in for you? Absolutely. And, and, you know, when, when the show became much more about different expressions of faith and the weaponization of that and how, uh, how faith can be demonized as well, um, that opened it up. This had always been a story about Christianity for me, uh, because that's where the majority of my life experience was, was rooted. Um, but I thought that was a wonderful opportunity and it's like, okay, let's, let's really, let's try to find a way to to truly explore Islam through a character um, and the different ways that that faith is perceived, especially in our country. Um, and uh, I try, I love ensemble. I really do. And I, I find that I am prone to lazier or more kind of masturbatory writing if I, the, the fewer characters I have, because there's less people there to question them. There's less to challenge the, their, their goals in a scene, their beliefs in this particular project's case. Um, it's easier to fall into a rut and just start talking through characters instead of trying to see through their perspectives. And, you know, um, that question of like, am I, am I trying to, am I trying to teach the viewer something or am I trying to learn something through the process of writing this? And I, I find that if, if I'm trying to learn, it goes way better. Um, <laughs> the story is better for everyone's happier. If I'm trying to, <laughs> to teach, I, I very quickly realize how little I know. And um, so, so this became this beautiful opportunity for me to take a perspective that was very much Riley um, and th that was already well represented in the story and to challenge it. Um, you know, I, I, I described it early as, Oh, I'm going to play both sides of the chessboard. Um, but that wasn't, that wasn't it. I, I was, I had to try to really understand who each piece was and why they moved the way they would, they moved what they wanted. And I love that work. I love putting a character up who isn't familiar who isn't just, you know, an avatar and try to get to know them um, and fall in love with them a little bit. And or in, in the case of Midnight Mass, a lot. 
you know, I, I think I loved every character in in the show except for Beth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, just couldn't. I tried so hard there's there's a scene where we desperately tried to humanize bev and i i throw in the towel <laughs> like the next scene i'm like i can't i just can't with her but we tried you know we really tried and i tried to make it yeah um but that that's also come with getting older is is a desire not to use these stories or these characters as a delivery system from my point of view uh, to use them as a way for me to grow. And and that, that has changed a lot of my approach to things, but um, uh, putting up the characters on the board and, and dreaming up who they were, what their goals are, what their secrets are, what their weaknesses are, what their strengths are and finding how they all fit together or conflict with each other. If you put the work into the character, the mechanics of the script start to become so much easier because the characters begin to dictate what you can and can't do. And if you if you really stick to it, you find yourself in periods of intense frustration saying things like, but Aaron wouldn't do that. <laughs> or, you know, Father Paul would not allow that to happen. Um, and it starts to feel out of your hands. You, if, if you've done the work on the characters, you start to feel boxed in by what they will and will not abide as fictional characters and and it starts to demand the story you know the, your options whittle down and i think for midnight mass for the longest time it felt like there were all these different roads that that the story could go down and it was a question of creating enough of a structure around it that it whittled itself smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until the outcome of the story felt like the only one that could realistically occur um and I've I've never had that happen with a project before. We we've always had a a goal in mind, an outcome in mind. And like I said, for this one, it was like we need to end up in a place where Riley's running a revival tent in the deep south and Warren's a vampire hunter. And it's like we had all these grand ideas for what to do. And I loved the way it was stripped down to this inevitable ending that just felt like I there's no way for me out of to get out of it as a writer. There's no way for them to get out of it as characters. So what are we all going to do for those last five pages together? Like what, what do we do? And, and to be able to watch characters sum up who they are in one moment of action at the end, you know, was really, I've never had an experience like it, like it writing. Um, and then it, yeah, it's like, cause of course, Bev Keen buries herself in the sand. You know, like it, there's no other way it can go. So it makes it in one way, it makes your job as a writer much easier because it's just like there's nothing else I can do. Hey, this is Al just jumping in to tell you about two of our great sponsors this week. If you've written a script and wondering what step to take next, well, you need to check out We Screenplay. We Screenplay not only offers amazing free resources for emerging writers, like virtual events where your questions are answered by leading Hollywood professionals, it's also the industry's number one script coverage service. With incredible 72-hour turnaround and format-specific feedback tailored to your specific goals, We Screenplay is used by thousands of writers in every phase of their career, from first-time writers to Oscar winners. So if your script is ready to go, check out one of We Screenplay's labs, where dozens of writers have been repped, optioned and staffed as a direct result of their real-life industry meetings and hands-on workshops. Don't stay stuck, We Screenplay wants to help. Head to wescreenplay.com to find out more, or click the link in today's show notes. 
Support for this episode also comes from Arc Studio Pro. Screenwriting to me is all about immersion. I want to stay immersed in that dreamy, fantasy-like state while I weave my story and craft my characters. I don't want to be distracted by anything and I certainly don't want to be thinking about text formatting. Arc Studio Pro understands that. It's so intuitive, it has a minimal and dare I say beautiful interface that allows me to stay completely focused on the story I'm trying to tell. To take your screenwriting to the next level, visit arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart where you can either download a free version or get $30 off a pro account to unlock its full host of amazing features. Use the code FRIENDS at checkout to get that discount. That's arcstudiopro.com forward slash script apart. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Well, you referred there to the one possible way this could all play out. And, uh, you know, we, we should talk about that and, and what it meant for the ending of the show, what it meant for the ending of, of some of these characters. I'd especially love to talk about Erin and her arc, you know, and the way that her story ends, because, wow, this, this hit me pretty hard. Um, I think Midnight Mass, for, for all its condemnation of some facets of religion, it does seem to subscribe to the idea of some kind of divinity, I think. Like, things happen for a reason in this show. In episode four, Erin talks about her mother clipping doves' wings so that they couldn't fly to the mainland. And in her final moment, you know, with this kind of incredible moment of sacrifice on her part, she's able to pull from that story and clip the wings of, of the angel of the vampire. Can you talk me through how, how that came to be and... Uh, yeah, whether whether also whether writing scenes for for any character to be played by Kate can be <laughs> challenging at all, Mike. Like, I don't know, maybe, maybe you're anaesthetized to it after so many collaborations together. But I, I think I'd find it initially quite hard writing for a loved one to put that character through through such hardship. I um, it was interesting because you know when Kate first for years Kate lived with the project, believing she died in the rowboat. Um, and was building, you know, psyching herself up for that moment <laughs> and, and was very excited about it. You know, with Aaron, um, Aaron, we, we talked so much about, you know, what note, whether it was, you know, defiance, anger, forgiveness, all these different ideas that you start pinning to different characters. Um, and for Aaron, uh, it, it was she was love and acceptance. And, um, when it comes to love, we, we explore different types of it in, in, in the show. And that all goes back to the more academic kind of side of the way I was raised, the different kinds of love. Um, but the one that in, in Christianity and is specifically called out biblically as being the ultimate expression of love is to give your life for another um, and I've always felt like the ultimate, ultimate expression of that is to give your life for people you'll never know. Um, and Aaron articulates as much. So it's like she she ended up representing, I think, one of the most powerful facets of faith, which is that, you know, especially in a, in a messianic kind of faith system, um, when people take on that particular characteristic of their savior and give their life for someone else or for others, you know, um, whether it's literally or, or through service or, or, you know, that to me is one of the most beautiful expressions of faith. So that that's where we wanted Aaron to go. Um, and then, you know, she didn't want, she's like, I just don't let me die 
ugly and sad, you know, like, like even I know my throat's ripped out. I know it's not a, it's not a peaceful death. Um, but you know, just let her, let her be okay. Let her, let her show us acceptance. Um, that was important to Kate because she was terrified of playing it, you know, of, of having to play it. But for me, I, I was like, this is the, this is the chance. Cause earlier in the show, Riley articulated my opinion uh, of, of what happens when we die, when I was at my most kind of atheistic. Right. And, and um, right after that, Aaron articulated the most kind of idealistic version of what I used to believe happened when we died, when I was younger and in the church and neither of them felt right because I do think I agree. There is, there is a spirituality to this show and there's a symmetry to the morality of the show. And that's some like that Aaron's childhood informs the spinal moment. And you know, that, uh, that, Hassan and Ali spend their final moments in prayer, which is where they tried. Where we first met them in some semblance of parental and uh, harmony, and then they they fell out of that, and that's how they kind of come back. That you know, symmetry. I believe very much in symmetry. Um, but I was like, this is the chance where I can really try to type out what I think today about what happens when we die, and kind of what I hope it is as a secular humanist who loves Carl Sagan and who believes very much that, you know, spiritualism and science are not at odds. The more I've, I've learned about both of them. Um, this is a chance for me to try to put those words out. And in that case, there's no person I'd rather be entrusting those words to than, than Kate. Um, and when we talk about what we leave for our kids, you know, Kate and I have two kids together. And the idea that she was like, yeah, this is, you know, this is someday they can watch it and say, this is what dad believed. And this is mom saying it and performing it. Um, that was a really kind of awesome opportunity for us. Um, but uh, I think I worked on that page of Aaron's monologue more than any other section of the whole, of the whole show um, over several different years. Uh and it used to be Riley's. It used to be his thing. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm very glad Kate. Kate was the one who got to to say it. I, I think she she brought something to it that I couldn't, and that Riley certainly couldn't. And, and what was the emotional aftermath like for you, Mike? Having having worked on Midnight Mass for so long and having put so much of yourself onto the page, like that now that dust god that's almost a really bad pun considering how how the show ends but now the dust has very figuratively and literally settled um yeah like how do you reflect back on this story and sort of some of the reactions that presumably fans have been coming up to you uh to share with you since since the show aired i think it's always going to be my favorite um i get i get very emotional watching the show uh you know, I, I stayed away from it for the longest time. I didn't watch it when it, when it came out. And I finally kind of a year later went back and enough had gone on. And I was off to like the third project since then. And, and I just sat and, and took it in because we never get to watch these things. You know, we, we see them so many hundreds of times in post and mix and color grading and like, you never watch it. 
Um, I'll never get to watch it, but uh, the closest I come is after the fact when I can look back with some distance. Um, I find it to be a strange experience because I'm very um, proud of and embarrassed by a lot of it. I feel exposed, but I feel grateful that I got to put it out there. Um, I feel that the show is something much richer than it ever existed in, in my head. Um, the, the other writers, the other actors who poured themselves into it took this period of, of kind of existential strife in my life and have helped turn it into something I think is really rather beautiful. Um, it's some of my favorite time I've ever spent working. Um, so I, I, I also remember the day to day of being on set with those people. Like it's my favorite cast I've ever, I've ever worked with. It's my favorite crew I've ever worked with. And that world we built together dissipated as they do. And I've worked with a lot of the same people again, but we all agree as great as it is when we get together, it's, there was something about that one that we all, took with us that you know we won't be able to recreate i um i felt depressed and exhausted when it was finished uh i felt way less precious about a lot of my other work um and when i would get pushed back from executives or or you know especially the pressure to make something more commercial i'd say sure you know i i i made my stand I got to do I got to do that show the way it was. And um and so a, a lot of the work I've done since I, I love it. It's important to me, but it isn't as personal. So I I um I'm less sensitive to how it's perceived and to how it's treated. Um I started doing conventions last year with my wife. Uh, she had done a bunch with Annabeth Gish and Henry Thomas and and it's a whole other world out there for this direct fan interaction. I never really did it. Um, but I, Kate encouraged me to go once or twice. She's like, you'll be surprised. You're really going to enjoy this. And you might, if you meet the people who have a, a very personal reaction to, to some of this work, it might mean a lot to you. And I felt kind of embarrassed and uncomfortable about it, but I went and people come up. I've talked to a lot of people um, in various stages of recovery um from addiction uh to whom the show means a lot and that really moves me um i've talked to a lot of fans who uh it's fascinating to me fans who are religious who love the show fans who are not religious and love the show um the most critical like vicious uh review i ever read of the show was written by an atheist and i still can't understand it <laughs> I, 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 I think i've read the one yeah it's it's i i thought for sure while i was doing it i was like i'm gonna i'm going to enrage people in the church and the atheists are gonna like the show but i'm gonna lose everybody else and and to see the to you know i, I talked to a priest who loves the show well, this atheist is furious. And I'm like, I, I, I don't understand how any of this happened either. It's <laughs> the show is means different things to different people. And I find it to be fascinating and incredibly rewarding. And I, I find myself get, I get very emotional when I, when I interact with fans. 
um, I, I feel very grateful. And, um, and when I see, I had this with Hill House too. I, there's something about and Bly Manor too. There's something about the fans of those shows um, who can really articulate this profound kind of meaning that they received from it. And um, that to me is, is one of the bigger honors of, of my life. Um, so yeah, with, with this one, I've kept a bunch of little souvenirs. I have props and I have wardrobe from it and I've got the angels wings in my garage. <laughs> and you know, I, I have all these little disparate pieces of it because I'm, I don't want to let any piece of the show go. And every time I do it, you know, I feel like I've, I've drifted further and further away from this really kind of amazing place. But I, in some moments when I'm working on new projects, I get very insecure. And I say to Kate, I'm like, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to do that again. Um, I don't think I have it in me to do something like that again. And, and she's like, you don't have to right now, give it another 10 years. And I, you know, you're not going to run out of things to say. It's like I, I'm, I'm curious to see what you think of those monologues and what you think of the point of view and the way that I look back at myself on the novel. And I'm, and I'm like, I didn't get it yet. Um, 20 years from now, I wonder what I'll think when I watch it. Cause I, I imagine I'll, I'll have some addendums that I wish I could put on and I'll still want to cut that goddamn cat shot out of the show. <laughs> um, well, it, it must be such a strange feeling um, staring down a blank slate again after after aspiring to write a story this personal for so long and then kind of finally accomplishing that ambition. Um, the Midnight Club, that was, uh, this, that was your follow-up series that came out in October. And um, it definitely had the feel of a palate cleanser. It seemed like you were having a lot of fun with it. I know that those are stories that, you know, have had a deep personal attachment to you for a long time. But um yeah, it did feel loose and it did feel free in a way that was kind of, I guess, like interpretable as, okay, Mike's exercised something there. There's, there's With Midnight Mass, he, he was able to cleanse himself of something and now he's moving forward. And this that project felt like a reset button almost. Um, yeah, looking ahead, I'd love to hear about some, some of the other projects post Midnight Club, post Midnight Mass, and um, yeah, hear how they may have been affected by what you achieved with, with Midnight Mass. I know you've been working really hard on House of Usher, for example. So um, yeah, maybe we can start there. Is, is it right to assume we'll see see that project this Halloween, Mike? I, I, I don't have an official date on it, but I think that's a safe assumption. Um, it, uh, Usher is very different from anything else that I, I've ever done. It's insanely fun. I, um, you know, Midnight Mass is very serious and very, very heavy work and <laughs> There, I, I've had since then a, a real desire not to carry that much weight into a project and through a project. And, and so Usher has some really fascinating and, and fun things to say about the world, but it's just fun. Like I, I, there are times I look at the show and I'm like, I think we made a comedy. Like it's, it's, um, it's riotously fun. And, uh, you know, Midnight Club was a palate cleanser and it was very kind of innocent I think that show, if I'm if I'm very vulnerable and honest about it, I think that show bore the brunt of a lot of the creative compromise that Midnight Mass otherwise would have. 
And it's almost like Midnight Mass got away with so much and the Midnight Club didn't. It, it there, There's a lot more compromise in there, ultimately, with the show we made versus the show I wanted us to make. Um, and, you know, I, I'm very proud of Midnight Club. I love it, but it didn't it didn't work the same way. And, and there's a part of me that's always feeling a little bit like the midnight club was kind of uh, punished for the sins of midnight mass, <laughs> but, but it's, it's, um, you know, I, I mean, I remember the moment they came in and they were like, no monologues. And it's like, okay, yes, it's okay. <laughs> you know, I, I um, so, so yeah, it's, it, it has been really nice to, to start and particularly in my feature work of late and in, in my, um, I'm desperate to get back into features as much as I love television. It's been like five years since I've really gotten to, to play in that world. And my, my priority shifting from, I want to get this very personal point of view out there and interrogated to, I want to make something entertaining. You know, um, I've felt that change of like, I, I want to, I want to, put the weight down for a minute and just try to really entertain people. Um, that, that has definitely been a big part of it. So, yeah. So is, is House of Usher a response then to Midnight Mass in any way? Or, uh, yeah, you, you mentioned it, it's different to anything you've done before. Yes. And it was from the, from, from conception, it was like, this is going to be crazy. Like this is going to be over the top. I, I use musical metaphors a lot. And I was like, if, if, you know, if Hill House is a string quartet or a, a piece of classical music and um, and Midnight Mass is a is a hymn, you know, then the fall of the House of Usher is heavy metal <laughs> and, and, <laughs> um, and so much fun. And it, it's it's the last of our Netflix shows. So it's it's also kind of the curtain call for this whole little universe we've, we've been able to build. It's a lot of the same actors from all the shows, like from all the hauntings and the midnights, you know, are, are all kind of together in one show now. Um, and it's, it's a show where uh, it takes some substantial risks, but they're all very fun. So you kind of get away with a lot more. Um, it also kind of came at a time when, you know, there was yet another systemic change at Netflix and we were moving over to, to Amazon. We, we knew our time at Netflix was over. And so there was a lot less pressure on, on, on that as well. It's like, this is the last one. I'm going to, I want to do it the way we want to do it. And, and Netflix seemed very happy with that. So, um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's all very different, but, um, it's interesting because Kate will tell you Usher is her favorite show. Um, of really? Yeah. And I'll, I'll say, but Midnight Mass is my favorite. Says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I get that. Usher's mine. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, uh, I think, I think at the end of the day, it'll, it'll be something that, uh, people haven't seen before that I think will be really fun. And then is it onto the dark tower? Like how does that fit into your crazy itinerary? If, if Carl wills it. Yeah. I, um, you know, we, we have the dark tower, uh, we carved it out from our Netflix deal, knowing we were leaving and we carved it out from our Amazon deal as well, knowing that they'd already tried to do it and might be reluctant to do it. So the dark tower doesn't have a studio. Like we don't have, we don't have a partner on it yet. 
So I'm developing it myself, which is really a, a blast. And that's my dream project. You know, I've, I've wanted to do that for so long. If we can get it off the ground, if we can actually get it going, I wouldn't, you know, I'm not ruling out Amazon's involvement down the line where, you know, our relationship with them is brand new. So we'll, we'll have to see. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I work on the dark tower in one capacity or another every day and, um, God, I hope that's next, but the industry is so crazy right now and yeah. every, there's no stable ground anywhere really. Um, and every time you kind of think it's streaming is where it's at or movies are coming back or movies are in trouble. No one goes to the theaters. No one really knows what's happening. And, and so I've learned over the years to try to keep as many plates spinning as I can, because you never know which one is going to take off. Um, all I wanted in the world back in 2014 was for someone to make Midnight Mass right then. And we took it to every TV stu uh, studio in town. And I'm so glad they didn't. Uh, I wouldn't have done it right. And, um, and I, so I have that in the back of my mind with all of the projects, including the Dark Tower now. I want to do it right now so bad um but i don't know that that's right right now and that two years from now might not be the time when we got to do it properly um and so so i i've become much more flexible and and much more kind of open to letting letting the industry tell me what's next and, and kind of letting life tell me what's next and just being ready, you know? Um, and if I find myself with an hour to kill, I'm going to be working on my dark tower script. So, <laughs> uh, you mentioned 2014, all you wanted was to make midnight mass. Mm -hmm. Another thing that you wanted to do in 2014 that I came across in my research for this conversation, Mike, you had talked about having recently watched someone play The Last of Us, and now you were inspired to to make a video game. That was something you really wanted to do at some point. Yeah. Recently, I saw a photo of you hanging out with Hideo Kojima. Yeah. Um, the video game legend. So, uh, yeah, is that is that still an ambition for you? Absolutely, that's an ambition for me. And when I when I talk about leaving leaving room for for the world to tell me what to do, um, that's a huge ambition for me. I also think it might be the future of storytelling. Uh, I, you know, between the last of us and then death stranding, which knocked me over, um, I have a 12 year old son and part of the, the big joy of my life is to introduce him to movies that I love. And he's, he likes them just fine. <laughs> he's like, cool. But man, when he plays a video game, he is immersed in that story in such a powerful way. And he keeps saying, I wish you did this. I wish you did this. I'm like, I think you're right. And I think more and more younger viewers are going to want to participate in the stories that they consume. And as the technology becomes so immersive and so incredible, I, I really think, you know, we are on the precipice of, of a major leap forward in the evolution of storytelling. Um, and I think, you know, Kojima-san Kojima -san is, is at the cutting edge of that. I, I admire him so much and, and I've gotten to meet him a few times now. And um, yes, you know, uh, I would, I would love to, to be involved in creating an immersive story for someone to, to enjoy that way. And, 
and you know Hideo's talking about changing the way we experience the world uh in 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 the work that he does um so you know i i'm i'm lucky to know him and interestingly the reason i know him at all um on a personal level is boy he really liked midnight mass and that's right he tweeted about it i remember that that's how that's how we he tweeted about it rahul kohli went ballistic and, uh, and we, we DM'd each other on Twitter and that's the whole thing. Like it's, it's such a, it's a, it's such a bizarre, bizarre world like that right now. Um, the, and, and it's funny, you know, the last of us bowled me over all those years ago and now I'm hanging on every episode of it and, um, and so impressed uh, by 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 what but by what Craig has done with that show, that I DM'd him on Twitter to tell him how much I love it. <laughs> and so now we're talking like it's just it's all it's all ridiculous. But um, but yes, I would love to do, long answer to a very easy question. I would love to do video game, uh, and I'm I'm trying to find the right way to do that. And speaking of The Last of Us, Mike, which you know is is kind of ostensibly a zombie story. There are a lot of other subgenres within the horror category that that so far you've you've yet to explore. You've of course made ghost stories. You've of course made vampire tales. I'm just curious, like what other horror traditions, be it kind of aliens or serial killers or zombies or anything like that, what else you'd love to tackle? All of it. The uh, one of the first scripts I ever took out in Hollywood was was a zombie script. Um, it's called Seven Dead Men. It was really really fun. And they told us at the time that that particular subgenre was dead uh, and that no one was interested in, in zombie stuff anymore. Um, and I think a year and a half after that, The Walking Dead, <laughs> Walking Dead hit. Uh, <laughs> I think I think shortly after that, um, uh, The Last of Us. I, I had a script that was all about cordyceps fungus. <laughs> no way. Did you tell Craig that? I did. I did. I was like, before I ever, before I ever saw the game, I, I, I saw the video of the, of the ant. Uh, That's crazy. And was so horrified. I was like, what a great way into a zombie story. Um, and then, then how I much the overlap game. was there? Uh, oh, um, I mean, we had, we had the, we had the, the virulent, I think the script that I wrote there was called the strain. I mean, Jesus, boy, that title, that title got hijacked. <laughs> And it was it was a it was people that it was a people on a destination wedding who went to a went to a wrong private island, found the aftermath of these strange fungal stalks, and realized when they looked down that the bases of them were people, and um, then one at a time realized they'd been infected by the spores, and that it was eating away their their brain, and so they got violent and could pass it by biting, but by the end, the stalks grew out of their eyes and it was this whole thing. And I think we, we had justified it as the, the fungus had been affected uh, because of pharmaceutical experimentation, um, trying to develop a more potent uh, and cheaper, more powerful um, antibiotic. And uh, it was a fun script and, and I, Jeff Howard and I worked on it for a while and then I saw The Last of Us, the game, and I was like, oh, well, that's, we can throw this away, <laughs> <laughs> which happens so often in this business where you're just kind of like, I, you know, I didn't, 
I I didn't know that was coming, and we we wasted a year on on a concept that you know barely barely scratched the surface of the amazing work they were doing. But um, yeah, that happens all the time. Uh, the first script that I ever took out ever um, for sale was a werewolf script. Uh, I'd still love to get that going. I still have it. Um, so I don't want to spoil that one. I know the Cordyceps one won't go anywhere, so I'm happy to share that one. But, um, but yeah, uh, I'd love to hit all of it. And, you know, one of my, one of the things that really energized me was I saw what Dan Trachtenberg did with Prey last year. Oh man, so good. So good. And it never would have occurred to me that it's like, oh, right. I, I grew up with these franchises I love, you know, Alien, Predator. What if I could riff on that? What if I could come up with a new story in that universe to tell? And I think he demonstrated so incredibly how you could do that in a way that honors a franchise while making it feel completely brand new. And I, I was so amazed by the ingenuity of it um, that that's changed the way I think about it. And because I, I guess for the longest time, I would look at it and be like, oh, I don't want to do a Predator sequel. You know, I don't want to go in and pitch on Alien seven like it 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 feels wrong but when you're like no i could just i could do my own thing using these elements that i love um, i think that's incredibly exciting and and i think it's what's going to make these all of these franchises viable in the long term yeah that actually leads me quite nicely onto um yeah some questions we've had from our patreon supporters ted wilkes he, he was curious whether there is a monster from the horror canon or some sort of ip um the way that kind of uh, you mentioned prey there is there is there one of those in particular that you'd love to pick up or you know that you think deserves a reboot a prequel or a, a requel to use a modern phrase um yeah is, is there one in particular that jumps out that you have a special connection to oh sure i you know back when universal was trying to build the dark universe out i was like god i just want to do creature from the black lagoon i just yeah. want to, i just want to find a way into that um but beyond that you know i've i've threatened over the years to be like, could we come up with, with a world beating tremors movie? Could we come up? Um, I love Carpenter's they live. That's, that's a, a film I think is as relevant today as ever that could absolutely stand a, a wonderful kind of reboot. Um, but yeah, I, I you know, I, I think those would be the big ones for the longest time. I, I would say Dracula. Um, but I ended up, I think I, I got to do my my Dracula. Um, one of the ones on my list forever has been A Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, boy, that would be fun. I, I have I have a whole take for it uh, that I worked out a couple of years ago. And my understanding is the rights situation for that title is so fraught. No one knows who controls it really. And no one knows who to pitch. So I, I keep saying my agents like, send me in a nightmare on Elm Street. And they're like, we'd love to. We have no idea who you should talk to. <laughs> um, and I've talked to, you know, I, I spent uh, almost a year of my life with Heather Langenkamp and we would talk about it. And it's like, nobody knows what to do. Um, but one of these days, one of these days, perhaps. Oh. Hold on, we have a visitor. My son, Cody, is popping his head in the door. Hi. Hey, Cody. Special guest. Yeah. yeah, I'm in a meeting and then I'll be out with you in just a little bit. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. <laughs> Cody and I are making a movie today. 
So no way. Uh, okay, I'm getting the exclusive on that. So uh, what's what's the plan there? He wanted to. He's curious about what I do, and he asked if he could make a movie, if he could write and direct a movie. And so I've I've a, a little bit of work, uh, some meetings this afternoon, and after that, my promise to him was I would be his DP. He's going to write and direct his first film and I'm going to shoot it for him. It'll be whatever he wants. So we're going to go make a movie tonight. And I'm very excited about it. Um, well, I don't want to keep you too long before you go and make this this masterpiece. <laughs> um, but uh, I do have one last question um, from, a, from a Patreon supporter. Yeah. Uh, Sarah Jensen wrote in to say, Al, your questions are often longer than the monologues in Mike's work. So please ask this question. How do you write your beautiful monologues, Mike? Um, what's the effect that they have on an audience, do you think? And uh, yeah, how do you work out where, the, where they'll best suit the flow of an episode? That's a, wow, that is a, that is a huge question. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know. Um, I never, with, with some rare exceptions, I think with, you know, what happens when we die in Midnight Mass, I intended those to be monologues. I knew going in, we, we're going to just sit and talk about it. Um, a lot of the other ones happen because I start to talk about something in the scene and it kind of takes over. Um, and it, I find myself breaking it up on the page. They'll talk for four or five lines and I'll put in a, a completely erroneous action line like, you know, she sighs or something and then keep going. And the more I find myself doing that, the more I, I realize I'm self-consciously trying to avoid the appearance of a monologue on the page by breaking up that chunk of text. Um, you know, I I think they have a mixed impact on people. I've talked to people who love them. Um, I've uh, read criticisms of people who hate them and claim to be bored to tears. Uh I loved theater growing up and one of the most impactful movies I ever saw was uh, Paris, Texas, Vim Vender's film, which has an, a, like a world ending monologue um, by a character who spends the whole first half of the movie, not saying anything and then sits down and Sam Shepard wrote it. And it's, it's just, it's one of the most incredible pieces of writing perfectly performed um, and shot uh, and it, it, it knocked me so over that I, I remember feeling, I wish I could, I could do that. Um, and that was when I knew what a monologue was. That was when I was sophisticated enough to say that is a particular type of art that I, that I want to explore as a kid. I was in love with Quint's monologue in Jaws. I didn't even know what the word for it was. You know, I just thought that part in the boat when he told that story was amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so I'm all, I've always been drawn to it. I love language. I love finding music in it. I, I love when words fit together in a way that make me respond to the craftsmanship of the words. Um, it, it, it happens sometimes I'll, I'll watch something and go, wow, just those words in that order created music, created a rhythm that, that could only have been done that way. And theater does it beautifully all the time. It, it's a dying art in film and television, I think, because audiences are intentionally conditioned uh, to demand new input um, in much shorter intervals. Uh, and it's it's 
you know, I'm, I'm going to sound very like get off my lawn, but it, it's it's the short <laughs> attention span that's being forced on on the way we train people to watch movies and television. I love pushing back against that. I love settling in. I love watching a good actor deliver something that transports me out of where I'm at, makes me ignore what's in the frame and ignites a second movie in my imagination. And when I see other people do it, it's a magic trick. I've always wanted to harness it. I throw darts at it all the time. Um, there are times like when I saw Robert Longstreet drop that monologue in The Haunting of Hill House, I was transfixed on set and I knew it would work. There are others I, I hope will work and I never know if they do. And my very favorite ones, uh, I've seen people tattoo parts of them on their bodies I've also have the had them be called out in reviews as the thing that ruined the show. So it it really, <laughs> you know, I don't know. Uh, the process of writing them is meditative. Um, I I can tell you just about without exception, every monologue you see in, in anything I've done was twice as long when I started. Um, part of the challenge for me is to cut is to cut them in half. <laughs> <laughs> and to, and to, I, I try to say everything I want to say, and then I come back and say, and how do I say this in as few words as possible? And then sometimes I say, screw the second part. I like the language. Um, but uh, it's something I'll never give up on. I really love when it works. Um, and it's something that my actors love. They, they love to be able to do that. And in a, in a medium that is looking for edits, that is cutting away from actors mid-sentence throughout most of their work, um, to just say, let's all agree and sit around the campfire with someone and look at their face and listen to them talk. I love it. I think it makes us better listeners. And as you've, I'm sure, noticed on this podcast, I'm prone to monologue. I, <laughs> I can't help it. I, you and me both. It's so, it's so good. Yeah, I mean... Why not? We only, yeah. we only have so many words we're going to say in our life. Like, let's let's get as many out as we can when we can. So. Uh, well, I hope Cody sneaks in a few uh, few monologues into into his his film this afternoon. Um, Mike, this has been so much fun, man. Um, Halloween 2024, 2025, whenever it is that you finally nail the haunting of Fraggle Rock, <laughs> we need you back on the show, man. Yes, absolutely. Uh, look, I've, I've enjoyed this conversation enormously. And count me in anytime uh, I'd be thrilled to come back and talk about any of the other stuff uh, that you want to talk about anytime that'd be so great well thanks so much Mike really do appreciate it thank you you've been listening to Script Apart hosted by me Al Horner produced by Camille Demek. thanks for tuning in we'll see you next time <laughs>